0: It's not it's not gonna be a matter of just pointing out white supremacy. Of course, white supremacy is a fundamental foundation in part of the country. It's not the only foundation. Because you got resistance to white supremacy. You got Lydia Maria Child. She wrote a book in 1834 called An Appeal for that class of Americans called Africans. It was deeply influenced by one of the greatest works ever written at that time by David Walker, Appeal to Colored Citizens of the World. She's a white sister. She is as vanilla as Doris Day in the 1830s, fundamental part of the Black Freedom Movement, right? Mm. Well, you see, those folk need to be lifted up because what does that do? That exposes our humanity in terms of the choices we make, not just the skin color we have.
1: Welcome to Literary Hangover. I'm Matt Leck. Uh, writing solo for the second time. And uh, what you just heard was Cornell West, Dr. Cornell West, on the Joe Rogan Experience, episode uh, 1325, mentioning Lydia Maria Child on the Joe Rogan Experience. I think that's definitely a first. And uh, that's who we're talking about today. We aren't talking about her a book an appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, uh, which was the first anti-slavery work in America uh, in book form. Uh, That was in 1833. We're talking about today a book called Hobomock, A Tale of Early Times. This was written in 1824 when uh, Lydia was only 22 years old. Uh, So you'll notice only a year after the pioneers by James Fenimore Cooper. And indeed she mentions the pioneers in the uh, preface. Uh, Also Walter Scott, we'll get to that later. Uh, I wanted to get to this finally, you know, because everybody knows about James Fenimore Cooper. Those are the novels that have made it down for, I think complex reasons that are related to empire building and colonialism. Um, But we, we, We've done two episodes on Catherine Maria Sedgwick's Hope Leslie. And this is sort of the precursor to Hope Leslie. Uh, And indeed, Lydia Maria Child knew uh, Margaret Fuller. They were friends and uh, was at one time uh, a tutor for Sedgwick. And uh, I think Hope Leslie develops uh, Hobomock, which is a much shorter novel, um, later into, and, and they, they both offer a sort of contrast to Cooper. And Cooper's later works, uh, The Wept of Wish to Wish and The Last of the Mohicans, uh, respond actually, uh, to the, the, um, those two women's take on particularly what happens to mixed race couples. Uh, we'll get to that also later. I want to bring in the, uh, for the first time, the work of Carolyn L. Karcher. She wrote this book, The First Woman in the Republic, a cultural biography of Lydia Maria Child. And it's a big book. But And so it, we, this is going to be the exclusive solo source for this episode uh, this week. Uh, and I want to point out here the debt owed, and I don't know if I've stressed this enough in previous episodes, to basically a series of feminist scholars in the 80s, is my impression, that unearthed, not totally, but brought into sort of respectable light, the works of Catherine Maria Sedgwick and Lydia Maria Child. (laughs) I mean, we talk about in the Orwell series about certain things being lost to history for ideological reasons. And I think definitely that's how you explain... Uh, The difference between uh, why we don't remember people like Lydia Maria Child and Catherine Maria Sedgwick and do remember Cooper. A fun fact about Lydia Maria Child is she wrote this Over the river and through the wood to grandmother's house we go. The horse knows. Uh, except it wasn't to grandmother's, uh, she wrote it to grandfather's house. and uh, But yeah, let's get to this uh, introduction, I think, by Carolyn L. Karcher, and uh, for a bit more on the significance of Lydia Maria Child.
2: For half a century, Lydia Maria Child was a household name in America. The famous anti-slavery agitator William Lloyd Garrison hailed her as the first woman in the republic. The radical Republican Senator Charles Sumner credited her with inspiring his career as an advocate of racial equality and sought her advice on Reconstruction policy. Samuel Jackson, an African-American correspondent of Garrison's newspaper, The Liberator, proposed enshrining her alongside John Brown in the pantheon of his people's white benefactors. The suffragist leader Elizabeth Cady Stanton cited Child's Encyclopedic History of the Condition of Women 1835, as an invaluable resource for feminists in their battle against patriarchal ideology. The transcendentalist theologian Theodore Parker pronounced her monumental progress of religious ideas, The Book of the Age, and written by a woman. A newspaper man ranked her popular weekly column of the 1840s, Letters from New York, almost at the head of journalism in America. Edgar Allan Poe praised her novel Philothea, 1836, as an honor to our country, and a signal triumph for our country women. The national anti-slavery standard proclaimed her Romance of the Republic, one of the most thrilling books, ever written involving the rights of the colored people not accepting Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Child's earliest biographer, the abolitionist Thomas Wentworth Higginson, converted by her 1833 appeal in favor of that class of Americans called Africans, paid tribute to it as the ablest and most comprehensive anti-slavery book ever printed in America. Tracing her formative influence on the activists of his generation back to the intellectual provision she had furnished them in their youth, he reminisced, In those days she seemed to supply a sufficient literature for any family through her own unaided pen. Thence came novels for the parlor, cookery books for the kitchen, and the juvenile miscellany for the nursery. Secure though her reputation seemed in the wake of the Civil War, child was erased from history when the backlash against Reconstruction that began even before her death destroyed almost everything she had fought for. She survived in public memory only through a children's Thanksgiving song whose authorship none but specialists could identify, over the river and through the wood. Slash to grandfather's house we go to ironically, it projects a cozy image of New England family life belied by the poverty, hardship and isolation child endured over a long career of self-sacrificing political advocacy. No less ironically, she is most often reintroduced to the public these days not as an author in her own right, but as the editor of a slave narrative which had originally required her endorsement and authentication before a publisher would print it, Harriet A. Jacobs's Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, 1861. Child herself might have relished this status reversal as the consummation of her life's work. When the African-American minister Hiram R. Revels won a U.S. Senate seat in 1870, she exulted, his election is an epic in our history. It marks the first great step in the emancipation of the white race from the enslavement of an unjust and absurd prejudice. 3. But contrary to her hopes, the overturn of Reconstruction in her last years marked a giant step backward relegating the prospect of the white race's emancipation from prejudice to an indefinite future and sweeping the anti-slavery movement into near-oblivion. Child would languish in obscurity for nearly a century. Not until the civil rights movement created a more favorable climate for reassessing the abolitionist legacy would reprints of her works begin to appear, and then only in facsimile editions for libraries. The first biography to bring Child back before the public in the mid-1960s, Helene G. Bears The Heart is Like Heaven, reflected the fashionable distaste for radical reformers, sentimentalizing child as an adoring wife who took up anti-slavery politics solely to please her husband. The second, Milton Meltzer's tongue of Flame*, 1965, honored her courage as a reformer and held her up as a role model, written primarily for the audience child herself had addressed in the juvenile miscellany, however, it necessarily smoothed out complexities beyond the grasp of youthful minds. Point 4. Although a trickle of scholarly articles and book chapters followed in the 1970s 5 no doubt stimulated by second-wave feminism and the birth of women's studies,
1: uh, compared to other authors, she had financial troubles uh, significantly, um, especially uh, involved with her husband, who is also sort of an uh, abolitionist uh, rabble-rouser, sort of. We uh, we won't get into him. Uh, she didn't meet uh, him until after she wrote Hobomock. Uh, actually, let's go through her, her timeline a little bit here. So born uh, Lydia Francis, uh, 1802, February 11th. In Medford, Massachusetts, another, uh, you know, New England writer. Um, in 1811, her brother, Converse Francis Jr., matriculates to Harvard. And that was significant because Lydia uh, often read his books, you know, despite being six years younger than him or around there. Um, apparently, she it never occurred to her that she wouldn't be mature enough to read these books. So she had access to this sort of literature. From 1811 to 1814, her mother is suffering and then eventually dies from tuberculosis. 1817, we have her first surviving letter uh, to her father. It's on Paradise Lost, uh, basically about how um, a bit of over-masculine energy to it. In 1820 is where things really start to get interesting for her. She, uh, She moves to Maine to teach. Uh, and she reads things like Ivanhoe, Walter Scott, um Don Juan. Uh, she gets into Swedenborgianism, which I think Swedenborgianism, which I think we might have to get into, uh, maybe we do a special episode on that. It's sort of like a a mix between a sort of feminist or proto-feminist it's sort of taught of complementarity of the sexes uh and so the comparisons to tantric buddhism uh, i don't know we maybe need to do some more research they came up a lot in my um utopia research as well and uh, what's also significant about 1820 when she's in maine is uh a couple things on on in terms of racial conflict in america you have her Uh, you have the Missouri Compromise and she's in Maine. And so what that, if people who don't know, Maine was a part of Massachusetts. They vote for their independent to become their own free state in 1819. In 1820, it's announced that that's conditional on the uh, acceptance of Missouri as a slave state, the Missouri Compromise. And that really radicalized Lydia Maria Child into uh, becoming an abolitionist eventually. Uh, And then also, she's uh, exposed to Native Americans for the first time. One thing that really stuck with her was uh, a woman during the winter came asking for food, uh, and it turned out that she had just given birth the previous day, and uh, Child found that out later, and it it stuck with her because of how the the hardiness, I guess, uh, of how the strength of women, and that sort of taught uh, Child that, you know, there's nothing women... Um, like the, uh, the idea that women can't do things men can do is, is something that's, uh, definitely overlearned and often false.
3: I used to go to the woods and visit the dozen wigwams that stood there, very often, she reports in one of her juvenile miscellany sketches, the Indian boy 49 she never went empty-handed, for the effects of their brutal dispossession lingered on among the impoverished Abenaki and Penobscot. But the cultural enrichment child derived from these contacts made them more than visits of charity. As she watched the Indians weave and dye baskets, listened to the stories they told, and daydreamed about the freedom their mode of life seemed to offer, she was imperceptibly developing into the author of Hobamock. Like her heroine Mary Conant, child may have indulged in romantic fantasies of eloping with an Indian. In dwelling on Hobamock's tall, athletic form, manly beauty, and elastic, vigorous elegance of proportion, 16, 36, was she expressing the attraction she had felt toward Alexis. 50. Did the rebellious impulses she shared with her heroine sometimes take the form of wondering whether marrying an Indian whose nature was unwarped by the artifices of civilized life might be more desirable than submitting to the restrictions civilized life imposed on women, 121? One restriction to which child refused to submit was the curtailment of her education. Unlike Medford, Norwich Walk boasted neither a female seminary nor a male college preparatory academy, but once again it did allow child access to the same opportunities for education open to the town's best families. There, the baker's daughter could attend summer classes given by students from Bowdoin College. Better still, she could range through the shelves of the town library, where Warren Preston, one of its founders, officiated as librarian. 51. Encouraged from a distance by Converse, Child tackled Samuel Johnson, Addison, Gibbon, Scott, Milton, and Shakespeare, recording her opinions, ambitions, and assessments of herself in lively letters. At times, she audaciously declared her independence. Whether the ideas I have formed be erroneous or not, She responded tartly when Converse accused her of misreading Paradise Lost, they are entirely my own. At others, she humbly admitted to a need for greater intellectual self-discipline and maturity, I am aware that I have been too indolent in examining the systems of great writers, that I have not enough cultivated habits of thought and reflection upon any subject. The consequence is, my imagination has ripened before my judgment, I have quickness of perception, without profoundness of thought, I can at one glance take in a subject as displayed by another, but I am incapable of investigation. 52. The self-criticism was astute, and she obviously fulfilled her intention of remedying the shortcoming she noted, for investigation was to prove her forte in the many historical works she went on to publish. Most suggestive are her comments on Scott's women characters, prefiguring as they do the rebellious heroine's child would before long create in her own fiction.
1: Once again we see the influence of uh, Walter Scott.
3: And she obviously fulfilled her intention of remedying the shortcoming she noted, for investigation was to prove her forte in the many historical works she went on to publish. Most suggestive are her comments on Scott's women characters, prefiguring as they do the rebellious heroine's child would before long create in her own fiction. I always preferred the impetuous grandeur of the cataract to the gentle meanderings of the rill, and spite of all that is said about gentleness, modesty and timidity in the heroine of a novel or poem, give me the mixture of pathos and grandeur exhibited in the character of Meg Merrilies, or the wild dignity of Diana Vernon, with all the freedom of a highland maiden in her step and in her eye. Or even the lofty contempt of life and danger which, though not unmixed with ferocity, throws such a peculiar interest around Helen McGregor. In life I am aware that gentleness and modesty form the distinguished ornaments of our sex. But in description they cannot captivate the imagination, nor rivet the attention. 53. Identifying with these wild and daring highland lassies, so much akin to the Indian women she admired, allowed child to escape vicariously from a feminine ideal she found as boring in life as in literature. While unconsciously preparing for a career of authorship, consciously child was studying to be a schoolteacher. In March 1820, a month after her 19th birthday, she wrote Converse to announce the good news, I leave Norwich Walk, and take a school in Gardner." What delighted her most about the prospect was that she would be earning her own living. Not that I have formed any high-flown expectations, she quickly interjected. All I expect is, that, if I am industrious and prudent I shall be independent. She did not yet realize, apparently, how radical an aspiration independence was for a 19th century woman.
1: Uh so yeah, the, the Maine is a very instructive time for her, uh despite her herself being a teacher. Uh in eighteen twenty one she does move back uh to Massachusetts, uh, to Watertown, Massachusetts, where her brother Converse uh is, being est- is established uh in the, in the church there. Um uh, that's and that's actually she gets baptized in the Congregational Church uh in her and that's where she picks up the name Maria. Uh, 1822, she joins the Swedenborgian Society of New Jerusalem in Boston. Uh, and then in 1824 is when she writes Hobelmock. In six weeks, uh, the first re- reviews appear in July. Uh, let's get uh, go back to Karcher w- once again and uh, discuss Hobelmock and uh, and where the inspiration came from.
3: Hobelmock, a tale of early times. Opens with an autobiographical vignette depicting its author's dramatic entry onto the American literary scene. Bursting into the study of a friend we can easily recognize as Converse Francis, the young artist to be brashly announces his intention to write a New England novel an intention prompted, as Child's was, by a Mr. P. Alfrey's remarks concerning our early history. Through her male persona, Child articulates her unwomanly aspiration to express the dormant energies of my soul and to win an epitaph in the male sphere of public action instead of in the female sphere of domestic life. Like Converse, her fictional persona's friend agrees to further the enterprise by procuring as many old, historical pamphlets as possible. And like Child, her persona self-consciously surveys a literary landscape dominated by Sir Walter Scott and James Fenimore Cooper, and proceeds to stake out the ground that remains unexplored. This vignette, which constitutes the preface to the novel, suggests how Child met the challenge of defining herself as an author in an era when authorship was still almost entirely the prerogative of an educated male elite. She began by identifying herself so thoroughly with her elder brother that she all but assumed his gender. Just as she had taken refuge in his bedroom and devoured his books while he was fitting himself for college, so she now ensconced herself in his study and enlisted his aid in fulfilling her literary ambition. At age seven or eight, it had not occurred to her that the books of a schoolboy six years her senior were beyond her childish comprehension Too, no more did it occur to her at age 22 that she could not claim the right to a public career her brother took for granted. Child seems never to have suffered from either the fear of unsexing herself or the paralyzing sense of inadequacy that inhibited so many other 19th century women writers in keeping with her male identification, she looked for literary precursors among male writers, showing no discernible awareness of being disqualified by gender from inheriting, or appropriating, their mantle. Simultaneously, she treated their texts with the same iconoclasm she had displayed as a 15-year-old when she had questioned Milton's lordly assertion of masculine superiority. Intuitively recognizing the problems posed by patriarchal literary conventions, she boldly revised them to accord women greater freedom and dignity. The anxiety child acknowledges in the preface to Hobomock is not that of a woman entering a domain reserved for men. It is the anxiety of an American seeking to demonstrate that New England's history offers as much scope as Old England's, and Scotland's, for the homegrown novelist hoping to emulate Scott. Aspiring American writers indeed faced a daunting prospect in 1824, as they groped for direction. Irving had just published the sketchbook in 1819-20, Cooper the Spy in 1821 and The Pioneers in 1823. As for predecessors like Susanna Rowson, Hugh Henry Breckenridge and Charles Brockton Brown, none had succeeded in solving the problem that confronted the writers of Child's Generation the creation of a distinctive national literature rooted in American soil. Rousen and Brown, however, had identified key elements of such a solution. In *Reuben and Rachel, 1798, Rousen had provided an epic that not only commemorated the discovery, conquest and settlement of the New World, but probed the complex relations between its European and Indian peoples. And in Edgar Huntley, Brown had transferred the Gothic novel from a European to an American setting, where tee incidents of Indian hostility, and the perils of the Western wilderness replaced sadistic priests and haunted castles as mainsprings of terror. 5. Of the two, Rousen came closer to furnishing Child with a congenial model, for unlike most of her successors, she perceived that the interactions between Spanish and English settlers and Indians had taken a range of forms besides wars, of extermination forms that included the assimilation of Indian converts into early colonial Spanish and English society the assimilation of European captives into Indian tribes, and a degree of cross-fertilization among the various cultures. Even more significantly, Rowson, who self-consciously announced in her preface that she presumed to write F or my own sex only, had revised the historical record to give women a leading role. It is intriguing to speculate about the influence Rowson might have had on Child, whose historical fiction would exhibit the same proto-feminist thrust and revisionist daring. By a curious coincidence, Rowson was running a school for girls in Medford during Child's infancy and she died in Boston the year Hobomock appeared on the local market. 7 But no evidence suggests that the two women's paths ever crossed, or that child ever read Reuben and Rachel, though she did express an unflattering opinion of Rousin's best-selling novel of seduction, Charlotte Temple. It has a nice good moral at the end, and I dare say was written with the best intention, yet I believe few works do so much harm to girls of 14 or 15. Writing when the historical novel was still fluid, Rousin never managed to shape it into a paradigm that an emergent national literature could adopt. Not until Scott brought the historical novel to maturity in the second decade of the 19th century—the decade when Child was sharing her impressions of his novels with Converse—did American writers find a genre suited to their purposes. Designed specifically to forge a nationalist consciousness and cultural identity in the newly independent United States, The American historical novel inevitably exhibited the same central contradiction as American history itself the contradiction between an ideology based on the premise that all men are created equal and a political structure based on the assumption that people of color and white women do not fall under the rubric men. Like its British prototype, the American version of the genre developed by Scott celebrated the triumph of a technologically advanced civilization over a tribal society. Unlike Scott, However identified by birth with one of the defeated ethnic groups whose heroic struggle against Norman and British invaders he memorialized American writers belonged to the conquering race, which constituted their sole audience. Their mission was not to reconcile the victor with the vanquished, nor to offer a healing vision of the two groups' eventual amalgamation under the victor's hegemony. Rather, it was to justify the complete obliteration of the vanquished race and at the same time to assert the victor's own cultural independence vis-a-vis the British they had just overthrown. Point nine. Ironically, as American writers were defined, the key to establishing a distinctive cultural identity lay in exploiting the culture of the very race their compatriots were so brutally extirpating. An early 19th century critic writing for the North American Review, the journal that was to formulate the first major theory of American literature, put the case bluntly. The United States was deficient in literature because its colonial existence, inherently opposed to literary originality, had deprived it of the basis for a true national literature. The remotest germs of literature are the native peculiarities of the country in which it is to spring, he pointed out, and a national literature seems to be the legitimate product, of a national language. Yet colonialism had saddled Americans with a literary tradition rooted in another continent and with a language suited perhaps to describing the serenity of the Thames, but far too tame to convey the majesty of the Mississippi or the grandeur of Niagara. These handicaps notwithstanding, the critic contended, America did in fact have an indigenous literature that displayed genuine originality, haughty independence of foreign influences, and poetic vigor equal to soaring with the eagle and thundering with the cataract, the oral literature of its aborigines. Critics in later numbers of the North American Review were quick to draw the inference, if American writers could mine the linguistic and mythological riches of this literature, they would develop the means of escaping their humiliating cultural subservience to England.
1: And that is sort of explicitly what France Fanon writes about in the, in uh, the wretched of the earth that we mentioned uh, on the pioneers episode most recently. Uh, I actually want to hurry and play the preface so you can get a a taste of it. The preface is actually one of the most interesting parts of this book because it demonstrates how, um, like books were exciting. Uh, I don't know. It seems weird to say, but like, the way that, uh, they're like blockbusters, uh, the way that she talks about the Walt, latest Walter Scott and then the coming, uh, she hints at, uh, Fenimore Cooper's The Pilot coming out. She's like a fan, the pref, we'll, we'll, just play it here.
3: Preface. In the summer of 1823, my friend entered my study with an air which indicated he had something to communicate. Frederick, says he. Do you know I have been thinking of a new plan lately? A wise one, no doubt, replied I, but, prithee, what is it? Why, to confess the truth, your friend P.S. remarks concerning our early history, have half-tempted me to write a New England novel. A novel. Quoth I when Waverley is galloping over Hill and Dale, what faster and more successful than Alexander's conquering sword? Even American ground is occupied. The spy is lurking in every closet dash. The mind is everywhere supplied with pioneers on the land and is soon likely to be with pilots on the deep. I know that, replied he. Scott wanders over every land.
1: See the the, uh, the spy, pioneers, and uh, pilots on the deep, uh, three, the f- three first James Finimer Cooper novels.
3: Alexander's conquering sword? Even American ground is occupied. The spy is lurking in every closet—the Dash the mind is everywhere supplied with pioneers on the land, and is soon likely to be with pilots on the deep. I know that, replied he, Scott wanders over every land with the same proud, elastic tread-free as the mountain breeze, and majestic as the bird that bathes in the sunbeams. He must always stand alone—a high and solitary shrine, before which minds of humbler mold are compelled to bow down and worship. I did not mean added he, smiling, that my wildest hopes, hardly my wildest wishes, had placed me even within sight of the proud summit which has been gained either by Sir Walter Scott, or Mr. Cooper. I am aware that the subject which called forth your friend's animated observations, owed its romantic coloring almost wholly to his own rich imagination. Still, barren and uninteresting as New England history is, I feel there is enough connected with it, to rouse the dormant energies of my soul and I would fain deserve some other epitaph than that he lived and died. I knew that my friend, under an awkward and unprepossessing appearance, concealed more talents than the world was aware of. I likewise knew that when he once started in the race, the du il take the hindmost was his favorite motto. So I in resolved to favor the project, and to procure for him as many old, historical pamphlets as possible. A few weeks after, my friend again entered my apartment, and gave me a package, as he said, Here are my manuscripts, and it rests entirely with you, whether or not to give them to the public. You, and every one acquainted with our earliest history, will perceive that I owe many a quaint expression, and pithy sentence, to the old and forgotten manuscripts of those times. The ardor with which I commenced this task, has almost wholly abetted. Seriously, Frederick, what chance is there that I, who so seldom peep out from the loopholes of retreat, upon a gay and busy world— can have written anything which will meet their approbation? Besides, the work is full of faults, which I have talents enough to see, but not to correct. It has indeed fallen far short of the standard which I had raised in my own mind. You well know that state of feeling, when the soul fixes her keen vision on distant brightness, but in vain stretches her feeble and spellbound wing, for a flight so lofty. The world would smile, continued he, to hear me talk thus, concerning a production, which will probably never rise to the surface with other ephemeral trifles of the day, dash but painful, anxious timidity must unavoidably be felt by a young author in his first attempt. However, I will talk no more about it. What is writ? Is writ would it were worthier? If I succeed, the voice of...
1: Yeah, so you get like the the obligatory preface humility there. Uh, Then we get into chapter one. It starts off with... uh, very um, sort of appeal to patriotism here. It says, uh, I never view the thriving villages of New England, which speak so forcibly to the heart of happiness and prosperity without feeling a glow of national pride. As I say, this is my own, my native land. Uh, and uh, uh, a long train of associations are connected with her picturesque rivers as they repose in their peaceful loveliness and broad and sparkling mirror of the heavens. Now, if we wanted a nitpick there, and I think we should, this is the place for it of course it's uh saying quite a lot to say this is my own my native land uh when you're you know dispossessor of natives and this book is in fact about that so i think there's some irony uh to that yeah chapter one um, um the uh inhabitants of Namkeek Namkeek, which is as we'd later know as salem uh, greet new arrivals from england after dark mary conant goes to w- goes to the woods to perform a love ritual more witch, some witchcraft uh, she expects Charles Brown uh, to be the suitor, and in fact, Hovemock, the Native American, appears um, when she says, you know, who's going to be my husband?
4: The rays of the full moon rested on her face, and I at once perceived that it was Mary Conant. Had my first fears been realized, I know not that I should have felt more surprise. Among all my conjectures, I could not possibly imagine for what purpose she could be making an excursion at that lonely hour of the night. I remembered the hint, which her father had given, concerning the beguilement of her silly heart, and I could not but suspect that this walk was, in some way or other, connected with the young Episcopalian. Whatever was her project, she seemed half-fearful of performing it, for she cast a keen, searching glance behind, and a long, fearful look, at the woods beneath, before she plunged into the thicket. After a moment's consideration, I resolved to follow her, and stepping from behind a tree which had afforded me concealment, I cautiously proceeded along the path which she had taken. She had stopped near a small brook, and when I first discovered her, she had stooped beside it, and taking a knife from her pocket, she opened a vein in her little arm, and dipping a feather in the blood, wrote something on a piece of white cloth, which was spread before her. She rose with a face pale as marble. And looking round timidly, she muttered a few words too low to meet my ear. Then, taking a stick and marking out a large circle on the margin of the stream, she stepped into the magic ring, walked round three times with measured tread, then carefully retraced her steps backward, speaking all the while in a distinct but trembling voice. The following were the only words I could hear Whoever's to claim a husband's power, come to me in the moonlight hour. And again, dash dash. Who are my bridegroom is to be, step in the circle after me. She looked round anxiously as she completed the ceremony, and I almost echoed her involuntary shriek of terror, when I saw a young Indian spring forward into the center. What for makes you afraid of Hobamak? said the savage, who seemed scarcely less surprised than herself. Wherefore did you come hither? replied the maiden, after the tones of his voice had convinced her that he was real flesh and blood. Hobamock much late has been out to watch the deer tracks, answered the Indian, and he came through the hollow, that he might make the Manito-Asena asterisk green as the oak tree.
1: So, right away, I'd say a more scandalous, uh, you know, setup than, um, uh, you know, a lot of things that we've read. You know, we find out things, uh, there's, there's a bit of dwelling on how bleak things are in Salem, um. Talk about uh, Episcopalians. Uh, basically, so uh, Charles Brown. We should mention who, sh- who the There's the love triangle between Habemac, Charles Brown, and and uh, Mary Conant. Um, and basically, the the rough um, uh, the rough symbolism there is. Um, the Episcopalian Charles Brown is, he sort of represents culture. He goes back to England. He sends some gifts. He's, uh, you know, um, a, a adventurous kind of guy uh, as well. And uh, Habermack represents nature. And now that's a bit complicated for both of them because they also have attributes of the other uh, in a way that I think is commendable for Lady Maria uh, in this book. Another thing I find interesting about the, uh, of this book and it really drew me in is her use of real characters. John Oldham being the most notable. Oldham, if you go back and listen to the Pequot War episode, uh, his murder is one of the, was cited as one of the, um, reasons that, uh, we had to massacre, or I say we as, you know, identifying with the colonizers, um, but, uh, why the, uh, why, the uh, colonists massacred the Pequot Indians. Um, Oldham himself was a bit of a—he's uh, uh, a very interesting character, and in fact uh, is is represented here as such. Although I don't, is you know, he is represented as a traitor, Mary's father, who uh, really hates Episcopalians. Uh, uh, he mentions Oldham f- the first time as you know where I don't smoke tobacco but Oldham's probably got some um, so he's a traitor and he's a very gruff um very um very uh, he he also likes to laugh um, humor is important to him but a very interesting character um, but the the John Oldham uh, the real one uh, himself not only was he murdered uh, In a way that in one of the inciting events of the Pequot War, but earlier than that, he was banished from Plymouth Plantation. And I'll just read uh, from the Wikipedia here. Oldham is proof that relations were not always harmonious among the pilgrims. Over half of those who sailed on the Mayflower had come for economic opportunity rather than religious motivations. In 1624, Reverend John Lyford uh, came over to America and was welcomed at first, but soon Plymouth residents gravitated to him who did not share the Puritans' viewpoints. Lyford gave them encouragement and met with them in secret. Oldham was a supporter of Lyford, and the two of them stirred up dissension and trouble in Plymouth, according to the accounts of Pilgrim leader William Blatt, uh, Bradford. And uh, the letter sort of came out, and uh, it was a big, big uh, scandal. Actually, I I lied when I said I won't have any other sources here. I want to bring in the American History Podcast. Uh, I'm not sure who this is by, but I'll link to it in the show notes. There's actually an episode on the Lyford Affair.
5: Publicly, Lyford made a tearful confession of his faith, but it sounded phony and Bradford was skeptical. He didn't call him out, though. He just kept an eye on him. Lyford almost immediately joined with another non pilgrim named John Oldham, who himself had already sent letters to London criticizing the colony and its leadership to the merchant investors. These criticisms had included criticism of everyday life, policy, and even the colony's religious nature. Lyford joined in sending these letters. He ran a serious risk of driving away influential supporters, especially because the Pilgrims hadn't been able to give investors a return on their money. When confronted, Lyford denied the accusations, but he also baptized the children of one of the non-Pilgrims in the colony. Bradford was determined to find out what was going on, so he asked the captain of the next boat carrying mail to England to pause after they were beyond the view of the Plymouth colonists. Bradford then followed in a small boat, intercepted the vessel and opened Lyford's mail. There he found it full of accusations, many of which Bradford said were false. It seemed clear that Lyford and Oldham were partnering with a faction of investors at home and planning to overturn the religious and political leadership of the colony, ending the independence movement within the colony and turning it into a mainstream Puritan town. Bradford didn't confront Lyford right away. He waited to see how the situation developed. One Sunday, Lyford and his supporters refused to join the Pilgrim Congregation for services, setting up their own church with Lyford as a minister. And at this point, Bradford had had enough. He put Lyford and Oldham on trial, and Lyford denied the accusations. So Bradford produced the letters and showed them to the entire colony. Lyford said he'd just been repeating complaints from people like Billington. But Billington and the others denied having participated. They said that while they'd gone to his meetings, they would never have consented to something like this. It was clear that Lyford and Oldham had to go. The Pilgrims had come to America to build a colony that adhered to their religious and political ideals, and the two were putting that mission at serious risk. The colonists put Oldham through a gauntlet where the settlers beat him with the butt ends of their muskets, and then both he and Lyford were sentenced to exile. Oldham would be expelled immediately, but since Lyford had a wife and kids, they let him stay six months to take care of them. Lyford made a second, even more tearful confession of faith, but he immediately began to write letters to London again, and then his wife came forward and told the colonists about his previous affairs and illegitimate children, as well as the rape he had committed in Ireland. Lyford and Oldham briefly stayed with a new band of colonists at Namkeag, which would later become Salem. And from there, they hitched a ride to Virginia, where Lyford seems to have been made a minister at either the West's or John Martin's plantation, but died just a few months later. Oldham later apologized for his participation in the affair and rejoined the Plymouth colony. In London, the Lyford.
1: So, yeah, Lyford is first mentioned as someone who says, who who was before the ship arrives in uh, Salem. As one of the naysayers uh, who says like it's actually really bad, whereas other people saying it's amazing, and it turns out Lyford was right. But um, in a, the representation of Alderman and Lyford, and is not true to history, but uh, uh, it's it's true to Child's habit of taking peripheral characters and moving them to the center. Uh, Hobbamock himself is, uh, another one. He's based on a real Native American, uh, it, I th- believe the real, the, uh, uh, uh Hobbamock, uh, H O B B A M O C K, uh, is how, uh, I think the historical one is, uh, is, is, is spelled, um, or, or referenced anyway. And, uh, and he was, uh, a, a Native American that was a sort of diplomat to the, uh Salem people, uh he came um in sort of a rival to Squanto, uh in a in a little bit of ways. There's a there's a weird moment where he accuses Squanto of being in on a planned attack and it's unclear who is telling the truth. Uh Squanto's not in Hubamak, but uh Corbitant is. Uh Corbitant is a Native American who was um uh, you know, skeptical of alliances with the English colonists, I think, uh you know, in the uh, parlance, uh, that he's a sort of stereotypical bad Indian. Our, our modern language has better, I think, terms for him. I think Killmonger, um, p- perhaps is, uh, another lens to view him through. So yeah, the ship comes, uh, Mr. Conant is, uh, is sermonizing about, uh, it says, uh, and actually, it's a shame Alex isn't here because he might be able to break down the biblical importance of this. But uh, um, Mary's father, Mister, the hard-headed, uh, you know, puritanical Mister uh, Conant, uh, says, since Namkeek has been old enough to care to receive a Christian name, say ye to them that in Salem, in his tabernacle and in his dwelling place in Zion, here he will break the arrows of the bow, the shield, the sword, and the battle. And Corbatant, uh, who who wants to go to war with the uh, English, uh, overhears that. He's like, what do you mean by there's going to be broken arrows? Um,
3: And since Namkik has become old enough to receive a Christian name, say yet to them that in Salem is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Here he will break the arrows of the bow, the shield, the sword, and the battle. But to them who are yet given to the pride of prelacy and the abomination of common prayer, and likewise to them who are weather waft up and down with every eddying wind of every new doctrine, say yet to them, that their damnation sleepeth not, and the mist of darkness is reserved for them forever, being of old ordained to condemnation. This speech was fiercely answered by a dark, lowering looking savage, who stood among the crowd. That is Corby tant, said Mary dash 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 what is it that he says? Your father say Indian arrow be broken at Namkeek replied Hobomock dash 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 Corby Tan say the feather be first red with white man's blood. He would have added more, but the vessels were now sweeping past the rock on which they stood, and every eye was fixed on their motion. Many a hearty salutation and blunt compliment were paid to Sally Oldham, and many a hat was waved in respectful adieu to Mrs. Conant and her daughter.
1: So yeah, Hobomock was a Poconoket Pnees, a representative to Massasoit, uh sachem uh, of the Wamp- wampanoag um they were sort of uh advisors administrative delegates sort of the cabinet uh, uh they collected tribute led warriors into battle and advised on the distribution or sale of land uh and in, uh, squanto and hobamok i don't know if squanto himself was a panice but basically these diplomats they would also be informants for uh the settlers, uh, very useful in that way and also made their, uh, existence pretty precarious, uh, from both directions, frankly. Um, and Hobomach immediately tells Mary what, uh, Corbaton, how Corbaton interpreted the, you know, the, it might be biblical, but it is very fierce. And when you think about it, is Corbetton really wrong to interpret it as a threat? I think, uh, subsequent history might, might prove his perspective a little bit on that. Uh, and actually, let's go a bit, uh, another mention of Lyford, who does not come out of this looking well. Uh, he's actually a bit of a creep. And uh, we'll hear um, Mary tell Sally, the daughter of uh, John Oldham, Sally Oldham, uh, which is her best friend. They're sort of the dual heroines, and I think they are they have more agency than maybe Fenimore Coover heroines would. Um, and she ta- tells Sally about um, the uh, mystic love ritual she did.
3: And when Jacob knew Rachel he kissed her, continued he, as he courageously put his arm round her neck, to suit his action to the words. I have had enough of that from the sanctified Mr. Lyford, said the resolute maiden, as she gave him a blow, which
1: Wait, basically we have a failed attempt at courtship by a uh, Mr. Graves.
3: Insinuating smiles. And when Jacob knew Rachel he kissed her, continued he, as he courageously put his arm round her neck, to suit his action to the words... I have had enough of that from the sanctified Mr. Lyford, said the resolute maiden, as she gave him a blow, which occasioned a sudden and involuntary retreat. Well done, Sally, said the hoarse voice of her father, who just then stepped from among the trees, half choked with laughter, and for a moment forgetful of the decorum which he usually maintained in her presence. Why, fellow, thou art smitten indeed, but it ill beseemeth thee to put on a rueful face at this disaster. The damsel is not worth the tears which an onion draw it forth. Sally gladly left her discomfited lover to recover himself as he could, and bidding a hasty good morning to Hobomock, as he stood laughing and muttering to himself, she followed Mary, who with an air of girlish confidence had beckoned her into a narrow footpath which led through the woods. For a few moments the girls united in almost convulsive fits of laughter. Did you ever see such a fellow? said Sally. Every day since they landed, he has been at my elbow, trying to make love by stammering and stuttering about the crackling thorns of worldly mirth, and I verily think he believes that I have been greatly delighted therewith. A plague on all such sanctified-looking folks. There was Mr. Lyford. I don't care if he was a minister, he was always talking about faith and righteousness, and the falling off of the Plymouth elders, and yet many a sly look and word he'd give me, when his good woman was out of the way. I marvel that fools can always find utterance, inasmuch as some men of sense are so dumb. Men of sense will speak all in good time if you will wait patiently," answered Mary. "But you don't know how glad I."
1: So, given uh, the high-profile abuse, um, especially by powerful men, uh, uh, I'm thinking Jeffrey Epstein, um, but uh, you know many, many others, uh, and how the conspiracy just—you know—that's allowed uh, if you've achieved a certain status in society. I, th- I think this is very prospective uh I think this is very interesting to see this uh in how timeless I think that uh dynamic is.
3: And yet many a sly look and
1: uh, or is proved
3: word he'd give me, when his good woman I don't care if he was a minister, he was always talking about faith and righteousness, and the falling off of the Plymouth elders, and yet many a sly look and word he'd give me, when his good woman was out of the way. I marvel that fools can always find utterance, inasmuch as some men of sense are so dumb. "'Men of sense will speak all in good time, if you will wait patiently,' answered Mary. "'But you don't know how glad I am that it happened to be your father, instead of mine, who saw you strike Mr. Graves.' "'So am I,' replied her companion. "'Though he is your father, to my thinking he is over-fond of keeping folks in a straight jacket, and I'm sure our belt is likely to be buckled tight enough by the great folks there in London.' In my poor judgment, it is bad enough that we've come over into this wilderness to find elbow room for our consciences, without being told how long a time we may have to stop and breathe in. Every bout I knit in my stocking is to be set down in black and white, and sent over to the London Company for sooth. I suppose by and by the drops we drink and the mouthfuls we eat must be...
1: Now this is interesting that, you know, how they're knitting for the London Company, uh, so their existence is built on them being able to produce commodities. Uh, and also the idea that you go over for elbow room, which is, you know, um, and in Hope Leslie, there's a, a thing where, uh, you know, we came over here to have it our way, or I can't remember exactly the terminology. Um, but it's interesting to hear that so soon after the revolution. This is about the well, little 50 years. Um, in fact, uh, another fun fact is Child was at the 50 year commemoration that uh, uh, Lafayette was also. Uh, Uh, The Marquis de Lafayette attended.
3: ...and breathe in. Every bout I knit in my stocking is to be set down in black and white, and sent over to the London company forsooth. I suppose by and by the drops we drink and the mouthfuls we eat must be counted, and their number sent thither. I am sure, replied Mary, when you remember how many Indians we have lately met, who Morton's unthinking wickedness has armed with powder and firelocks, you will be glad that we have 300 more defenders around us, whatever price we may pay there for.
1: Indeed, Sally. That's already the second reference in this book to our good buddy Thomas Morton, who was, uh, had his maypole at Marymount, enjoyed having good times, and also, uh, traded guns with Native Americans, which really concerns them. And actually, even later, he's mentioned that his, uh, his acts are making Native Americans really bold in a way that's not helpful.
3: Glad that we have 300 more defenders around us whatever price we may pay there
1: Sorry yeah to stop again but it also reminds me of you know the historicity of Lyford and John Oldham as guys who were there mainly for the economic gain, uh, less less interested in the whole like strict religious uh, authority uh, following And that's a side of things that I think is definitely underrepresented. I could imagine a very funny, Um, period comedy uh, about the people who are there mainly to uh, make money as they have to act pious, uh, more pious than they uh, really are. And, uh, you know, for, for, you know, reasons of taste uh, and what taste was considered at that time, you're not going to hear a lot of those narratives. Uh, So where you, you do see them uh, like Oldham, for instance, uh, in this book, to see you know, and not not it's not as uh, it's not real. It's it's definitely uh, sanitized a little bit, but it's definitely interesting.
3: I've lately met, whom Morden's unthinking wickedness has armed with powder and firelocks. You will be glad that we have three hundred more defenders around us, whatever price we may pay. Therefore, indeed, Sally, I'm weary of this wilderness life. My heart yearns for England, and had it not been for my good mother. I would gladly have left Namkeek today. I can't but admire ye have been content so long, Miss Mary, considering what you left behind you. If you'd stayed there, who knows but you might have been Lady Lincoln. But as for this purlieu of creation, I know of no chance a body has for a husband, without they pick up some gunset or wandering Taratine. Oh, don't name such a thing, said Mary, shuddering. Why, what makes you take me in earnest?' answered sally but perhaps since there are so many young folks to pick and choose among you'll be weary of my crackling mirth as that stupid graves calls it no sally these newcomers won't make me forget how kind you have always been in sickness and health but to tell you the truth there is something troubles me and if you'll promise not to tell of it i'll tell you oh i'll promise that and keep it too if i was disposed to tell your secrets I don't know anybody but owls and bats I should tell them to. Well then, you must know, the other night I did a wicked thing. It frightens me to think thereof. You know the trick I told you about? Well, a few weeks ago, I tried it, and just as I was saying over the verses the third time, Hobomok, the Indian, jumped into the circle. Hobomok, the Indian. Yes, dash and I screamed when I saw him. I believe so indeed. But was it he, real flesh and blood? It was he himself, though I thought at first, it must be his ghost. But how came he there, at that time of night? That's more than I can tell. He said he came to throw a bow on the sacrifice heap, down in Endicott's Hollow, but I don't know what should put it into his head just at that time. What do you suppose did? I'm sure I don't know, Mary. I think it is an awful wicked thing to try these tricks." There's no telling what may come of asking the devil's assistance. He is an acquaintance not so easily shook off, when you've once spoke with him, to my certain knowledge. My father says he's no doubt the Lord has given Beelzebub power to choose many a damsel's husband, to recompense her for such like wickedness. I'm sure I have been curious enough to know, but I never dared to speak to Satan about the matter. I believe it is a sin to be repented of, but what could I do? Father won't suffer me to see Charles anywhere. If he can help it, and if I dared to be disobedient to him, I wouldn't do it while my poor mother was alive.
1: So yeah, in this you get uh, a lot of what this book is about, which is, it's it, it's not very woke uh, in terms of race. It's it's more woke than, uh, you know, typical literature at its time in that, you know, we eventually get, uh, well, I won't spoil anything uh, yet, but um it, what it really is is about patriarchy. So you have Lyford, who's a lecherous kind of guy, um, despite his place in power, and you have Mary's father, uh, and that upsets Sally. And you have Mary's father who won't let her uh, go out, try, uh, you know, follow her heart and marry Charles Brown because he's Episcopalian. And what that drives her to do is the scariest thing of all: is witchcraft. And, uh, and, and, you know, even scarier for these fathers is with the, the love, um, you know, Mary does the mystic love ritual and she sees, and it's like, show me my husband. And the first person she sees is Hobomach and the second person she sees is uh, Charles Brown. Uh, and you know, that's called foreshadowing folks. So yeah, chapter three, we have more of the courtship, uh, narratives, uh, Mr. Graves comes back to try to court Sally again. He falls on his ass, um, and uh, and John Oldham is trying to you know teach his wife and daughter Sally some piety, um, but says uh, two two quotes uh that I are harsher than you typic, you typically see in characters in literature. Uh, she tells Mary, uh, you talk like a prating idiot, uh. They're talking about, you know, religious stuff. And, uh, and, and Sally interrupts saying, you know, I think things are less severe than you, uh, say. And he says, you talk like a prating idiot as you are, which is pretty intense. Uh, uh, He says what with your own hankering after French goo and the grand stories of your Moabish companion, uh, you have your head clean turned from the sound sense of sober godliness and his wife sticks up for her and he says you utter the sayings of a foolish woman and so uh which is pretty intense and like just verbal abuse and then he starts laughing at graves falling on his ass and they all get along again uh chapter 4 we have a conflict between a uh, Corbetant and Hobomack morton is again blamed for uh you know making the native americans feel a bit too menacing or get a bit too menacing
3: at the period of which we speak, the thoughtless and dissipated Morton, whom we find mentioned so frequently in our early history, had done much to diminish their reverence for the English. Partly from avarice and partly from revenge of Governor Endicott's spirited proceedings against his company at Marymount, he had sold them rifles and taught them to take a steady and quick-sighted aim, so that they now boasted they could speak thunder and spit fire as well as the white man. Of late, too. Their councils became dark and contentious, for their princes began to fear encroachments upon their dominions, and their prophets were troubled with rumors of a strange god.
1: Corbeton taunts Hobomok for caring about uh, the settlers. There's a weird part where Hobomok basically knows that his race is doomed, uh, um, uh, and it makes him sort of depressed. I guess it's very strange. Um, uh, anyway, when Corbetant and Hobomak fight over their dispute, uh, Hobomak almost kills him. Chapter five. Mary's mom gets sick. Uh, Hobomak comes comforts her. Uh, there's a lot of talk of alliances between tribes. Um, Hobomak warns of a threat from Corbetant, and ultimately that th- that threat is foiled uh, and the natives are captured. That's one th- thing that distinguishes this is uh, there's not a successful Uh, raid um, uh, against settlers Uh, there is in Hope Leslie of course I want to go back to Karcher again and uh, she talks a little bit about uh, Child's naivety, she was only 22 uh, when she wrote this Um, and uh, and she was reliant on sources that are significantly less um, I guess fair uh, to put it bluntly, um, than the ones we have now, uh, particularly to the Native American side of things, uh, in terms of especially like the Pequot War. Her, her interpretation of the Pequot War is significantly uh, less nuanced than uh, Catherine Maria Sedjuks would be in Hope Leslie.
3: And ...delivered over to her father, who generously forgives her disobedience. yamoiden sacrifices his life to save his hitherto estranged father-in-law from an Indian's tomahawk and Nora dies in her husband's arms as her father promises to raise the couple's baby. Point 22, what becomes of this baby, the poem's epilogue does not specify, but the concluding lament over the tragic outcome of the marriage and of the Indian uprising intertwined with it does not portend a hopeful resolution. That's, talking, the about, the racial-
1: that's talking about a poem called Yamoiden, which uh, came out before uh, Child wrote Hobelmach and uh, is indeed the probably the main inspiration for it
3: for the uprising the Puritans' execution of three Wampanoag warriors. Still, Eastburn and Sands, like Cooper, centered their epic on race war and ended it with a reassertion of patriarchal authority. The love affair between the Nipnet Yamoitan and the Puritan Nora, which initially points toward an alternative future for the two warring races, and a larger role in determining her own destiny for the Anglo-American woman, culminates in tragedy. Nora is captured and delivered over to her father, who generously forgives her disobedience. Yamoidan sacrifices his life to save his hitherto estranged father-in-law from an Indian's tomahawk, and Nora dies in her husband's arms as her father promises to raise the couple's baby. What becomes of this baby the poem's epilogue does not specify, but the concluding lament over the tragic outcome of the marriage and of the Indian uprising intertwined with it does not portend a hopeful resolution. For the child of the racial conflicts that have doomed the parents, no doubt this reassuring negation of a threat to white supremacy and patriarchal authority saved Eastburn and Sands from the censure Child would reap when she followed their lead in violating the taboo against interracial marriage. At the time she wrote Hobomach, Child evidently had a much lower level of political consciousness on the Indian question than Eastburn and Sands did. She had not yet begun to contest the Puritan chronicler's version of the wars that decimated the Indians. As she would five years later, in a book aimed at arousing opposition to the U.S. government's crooked and narrow-minded policy toward Indians, the first settlers of New England, 1829.23, nor had she come to see the Indians who defended their people's sovereign existence and territorial rights, rather than those who sided with the whites, as the true heroes of an American national epic. Unlike Yamoiden, who joins King Philip's uprising despite the pleadings of his English wife. Child's Hobomok betrays an Indian conspiracy to save his white beloved and her family from massacre. Child also stereotypes Hobomok's adversary, Corby Tant, a militant foe of the English usurpers, as a villainous bad Indian. What dictates the plot of Hobomok is not its author's awareness of racial issues, but her rebellion against patriarchy. Nevertheless, the result is a revolutionary insight into the connection between male dominance and white supremacy. This insight suggested to Child the central theme of Hobomock and indeed of her entire life as a reformer and writer, interracial marriage, symbolizing both the natural alliance between white women and people of color, and the natural resolution of America's racial and sexual contradictions. Thus, if we are to understand Hobomock and the alternative vision of race and gender relations it introduces into American literature, we must take as our starting point the defiance of patriarchy that governs its fictional strategies. Even the most seemingly conventional strategies Child uses turn out to be subversive. The book's main formal device, for example, the pretense of relying on an old, worn-out manuscript, six, allows Child to appropriate the narrative authority of the Puritan chroniclers while rewriting the hagiography they had bequeathed to posterity. It also allows her to evade the sanctions against female authorship by speaking through a series of male narrators. Signed by an American, *Hobomock* was published anonymously for Child had been gravely warned. That no woman could expect to be regarded as a lady after she had written a book. Under the cover of her principal male narrator, the purported editor of the old, worn-out manuscript allegedly written by an ancestor who debarked at Nongkik in 1629, 6, Child announces at the outset that her source demands considerable revision. Its style is antiquated and almost unintelligible, its content too familiar to readers brought up on John Winthrop's journal, William Hubbard's General History of New England, and Nathaniel Morton's New England's Memorial to bear repetition, everyone acquainted with our early history remembers the wretched state in which newcomers found the scanty remnant of their brethren at Nongkik, she asserts. Hence, child plans to substitute her own language and to pass over her source's dreary account of sickness and distress. The effect of these revisions, of course, is to undermine the authority of the original text and to deflate the myth that such dreary accounts served to consecrate the myth of heroic martyrs battling God's enemies in the wilderness. The deflation is quite explicit in Child's description of the colony as it appeared to her ancestor, with six miserable hovels constituting the whole settlement of Nongkik and a few sickly and half-starved inhabitants presenting a pitiful contrast to the vigorous and wandering savages who stood among them. A glance at Child's sources, which cite half a score of houses in lieu of six miserable hovels, 26 reveals how consciously she went about writing an alternative history of the Puritan experiment one that highlighted its underside and shifted the focus from the saints to the sinners, from the orthodox to the heterodox, from the white settlers to the Indians, from the venerated patriarchs to their unsung wives. To begin with, the historical prototypes of her principal male characters all occupied either marginal or deviant status in the Puritan community. Roger Conant and John Oldham were disaffected members of the Plymouth colony. Oldham, in fact had been expelled from Plymouth for fomenting dissension along with the Reverend John Lyford to whose lechery child alludes 19. later Oldham's murder by Indians which childs the first settlers of New England would blame on his hot temper helped touch off the Pequot warp ironically in hobamock child transforms this humorless bigot into a jocular gadfly who blasphemes the mysteries of godliness and laughs at his own disgraces with the most shameless effrontery 11 to 12. as for Conant credited by Hubbard with courage and resolution to abide fixed in his purpose, notwithstanding all opposition and persuasion he met, Child brings him to his knees by forcing him to accept his daughter's successive marriages to two men his religion brands as outcasts, the Indian Hobamok and the Episcopalian Charles Brown. Even more historically marginal than Oldham and Conant, the Episcopalian Samuel and John Brown are mentioned only briefly in the Chronicles. They never reappeared in Namkeek after their banishment by John Endicott for speeches and practices tending to mutiny and Faction 29 fusing them into her hero Charles Brown, however, whom she pointedly names after the king the Puritans had fled, child awards him the hand of her heroine in an honorable place in the colony that has previously exiled him. As an Indian, the historical Hobomach was by definition a marginal figure in Puritan eyes, albeit a valued ally. Sometimes confused by the chroniclers with the god whose name he bore a deity that a Puritan woman was hanged for allegedly taking as her husband in 165,330 Hobamock did earn this accolade for furthering the colonists' peace. With the natives. Hobamak, who came to live amongst the English, he being a proper lusty young man, and one that was an account amongst the Indians in those parts for his valor, continued faithful and constant to the English until his death. He, with the said squanto being sent amongst the Indians about business for the English, were surprised by an Indian sachem named Corby Tant, who was no friend to the English, and offered to stab Hobamak, who being a strong man, soon cleared himself of him, and with speed came and gave intelligence to the governor of Plymouth. Though retaining these details, Child goes her sources one better by elevating Hobamak to the rank of title character, marrying him to her Puritan heroine, and integrating the couple's son into white society, a daring inversion of her Puritan ancestors' errand into the wilderness, 32. Repeatedly, Child revises patriarchal script by turning the peripheral into the central, the central into the peripheral. Nowhere is this more obvious than in the leading roles she accords the wives and daughters of the patriarchs, literally invisible in the chronicles.
1: I did forget to mention uh, that she, I I think I did, that uh, she cited it as... Or that she signed the book as uh, an American, uh, so you know, sort of projecting a male identity. Um, but uh, I do think that's interesting the way she she puts peripheral characters uh, like Lifford and Oldham uh, into the book like that. Very interesting. So yeah, so chapter five, her, her uh, Mary's mother gets sick, and uh, chapter six. Uh, you have the, you know, you, we stop the attack of Corbatant. And uh, Charles Brown visit, visits Mary against uh, her father's orders, uh, invites Mary to come back to England with him, and Mary declines and says she can't leave her mother because she's sick. Um, and he's like, just wait until she's dead, and then we can go back to England. Um, uh, life was different then. So at uh, chapter 7 and 8... Um, Basically, this guy Collier had asked Sally uh, if she would marry this other guy Hopkins uh, in England, and uh, he, who was sort of more powerful in the church. And she denied him, and uh, Collier go, um, and said, Act, "But you, Collier, I would have you." And so Collier goes back to tell Hopkins this. Hopkins gets pissed, and then they have a church investigation into it. Uh, and the church is like Hopkins you're being a dumbass man um but at one point they ask they it gets pretty serious and Sally has to have Mary because she can't write uh, have Mary write her uh a statement and Collier was cleared and Sally was reprimanded as reprimanded as uh unladylike um uh, <laughs> and uh actually Oldham uh gets pissed off at uh at the church, for there, so there's some true uh, history there. Chapter 9 is the uh, sermon uh, chapter, and we're seeing a number of these. Uh, I feel like, a, like pretty much every novel has uh, a chapter where everyone goes to church, and here's something that's sort of related to the plot. Here, uh, a guy named Higginson is chosen as church preacher his inaugural address he uh he talks about how uh sin is seeping into the community while gesturing at brown and the other uh, nonconformists, and uh mary's still of course in love with brown chapter 10 brown gets in trouble for his uh his nonconformity. um he eventually flees and mary stays uh, because of her mother again uh there's another fight with uh, mr Conan. Chapter 11, we start to get lost. A big chunk of this book is Mary experiencing loss. Um, so we have Charles Brown leaving and Sally Oldham leaving. Uh, Brown to England, Sally to Plymouth. Chapter 12, we have the winter following Brown's departure. And it's very bleak, but Hobomok pays a visit. Uh, and he, turned, he he starts falling for Mary. Uh, she loves his tales. Uh, there's a bit of an Othello element. Uh, critics, I think, maybe Karcher uh, uh, point out. One of the more interesting sort of pastimes uh, mentioned here is, uh, hunting deer by torchlight now, uh, which is basically you, if you go into the woods with, f- f- uh, torches, the deer sort of get dazzled by the light. And, uh, this is something that, uh, people still do, uh, un- uh, uh in very unsportsmanlike manner, uh, as uh, my father taught me, you know, you don't do this type of shit, but uh, it works with uh, even better with uh, fog lights on cars. So if you search in YouTube spotlighting a deer, I don't know. Let's see if we get any videos here. Yeah. They, they basically just look directly into the light. Um, and I mean, they'll sometimes run away, but it's, they just sort of get dazzled by it and it's, uh, it's, uns- it's, uh, and then you can just shoot them because they're just sitting there. Um uh, Mary take er, um Hobomack takes Mary out on one of these hunts and she's sort of amazed by it. Um there's a lot of distinctions drawn in the torchlight between the uh, Puritan men and the native men um and I think that's it, it is interesting, you know, the um there there's a more of an erotic subtext to this. Then, eh, you know, I guess there's there's some in James Fenmer Cooper, too. Um, it's interesting to see, to think about. Um, uh, Karcher talks a little bit about elements of, you know, even, I don't know if you'd call it proto-erotica, the way uh, Hobomock is looked at by Mary. Let's actually play a little bit of this.
3: Fox of the Mississippi. Hobomock brought you fur for Macassans, said he as he handed them to Mary. "'How very soft it is,' said she, showing it to her mother. "'It seems like the handsome fur, which grandfather had from Russia.' "'You did not kill it yourself, Hobomok!' The Indian shook his head. "'His tracks are toward the setting sun,' replied he. "'Hobomok give beaver skins like sand to a warrior come in from the west. He say they call it Musaham Shungush. There is a council fire at Mount Haup. The chiefs think the hunter came not to trade for beaver skins, but to find how heavy the red men of Osimakin, Sissakis, Myantinimo, and Uncas. Have none of them been hither, heretofore.
1: So what's significant here is that, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that Charles Brown, the suitor of Mary, represents sort of culture, and Hobomach represents nature. But here, Lydia uh, Child does something interesting in that, you see the depth of Habamack's culture uh you know he has these trading connections he can tell these stories uh, he's not just you know killing the animals himself um and you know uh, uh, brown also is um, seen as proficient in nature so um these the the culture versus nature thing is to child's credit more complex than you might think
3: and of Oskin Sisakis antonimo and uncas. Have none of them been hither, heretofore? inquired Mary. One warrior came among us in the moon of flowers and spread his blanket with us through the hunting moon. I talked with him, like as with the Yengees. He told big stories about his tribe, but he say great spirit lay between us, and his backbone so high, make foot of the Indian weary. The chiefs said he counted red men then, but the cloud passed over. Well, rejoined Mary, I hope they'll bring more such handsome fur hither. If they come to count the red men, peradventure they'll find them too heavy. You see I am going to make you a wampum belt of the shells you brought, and I want you to tell me how to put them together. Hobomok glad.
1: Yeah and so we'll skip a little bit ahead here to the hunt.
3: How I do wish I could see them hunt by torchlight. I shall go out with you, said Mr. Conant, to see what success the Lord giveth us in this matter. I have heard wonderful stories appertaining to the taking of deer after this fashion. They say that in the lightest night that ever was made, the creatures are so bewitched, that they'll not move a jot, after they once get sight of the fire. And wherefore shouldn't I go, father? asked Mary. A pretty sight truly, replied the old man, to see you out at midnight with twenty hunters. But, rejoined his wife, two or three horses can be procured, and if a few of the young folks will go, assuredly I see no harm therein, more especially as you will accompany Mary. You must remember, continued she, in an insinuating tone, that there are few such like gratifications in this wilderness. No doubt there is enough of them, wherewithal to entice their wandering hearts, answered her husband, but if you think it fitting the girl should go, verily I have no objection thereto. Preparations were accordingly made. The window-willet agreed to come up and stay with Mrs. Conant, and a few young women readily consented to accompany Mary, on such horses as the settlement could afford. As for Hobomach, he was all eagerness to display his skill. His arrows were carefully selected, and the strength of his bow was tried again and again, as he occasionally turned to Mary, and boasted of the service it had always done him, in field and forest. Winter seldom presents a night of such glittering beauty, as the one they chose for their expedition. The mellow light of moon and star looked down upon the woods, and as the trees danced to the shrill music of the winds, their light was reflected by ten thousand undulating motions, in all the rich varieties of frost work, It seemed as if the sylphs and fairies, with which imagination of old, peopled the mountain and the stream, had all assembled to lay their diamond offerings on the great altar of nature. Silently Mary gazed on the going down of that bright planet and tree, and shrub bowed low their spangled plumes in homage to her retiring majesty, till her oblique rays were only to be seen in faint and scattered radiance, on the cold, smooth surface of the earth. At length the party were in motion proceeding through the woods by the twinkling luster of the stars. Mr. Conan held the rein of Mary's horse, and guided his footsteps along the rough and narrow path. Hobomok walked by her side, as silent and thoughtful as he usually was in the presence of her father. They soon came out upon the open plain, and a few moments after, six neighboring Indians were seen winding along from the opposite woods, with their torches carried upon poles high above their heads, casting their lurid glare on the mild, tranquil light of the evening. As they drew up, a few inquiries were made by Hobomock in his native tongue, and answered by his companions in scarcely an audible tone, as they significantly placed their fingers upon their lips. Mr. Conant and his ten associates formed a line and fell into the rear, while the Indians who carried the poles, did the same, and placed themselves forward. It was indeed a strange, romantic scene. The torches sent up columns of dense, black smoke, which vainly endeavored to rise in the clear, cold atmosphere. Hobomach stood among his brethren, gracefully leaning on his bow, and his figure might well have been mistaken for the fabled deity of the chase. The wild, fitful light shone full upon the unmoved countenance of the savage, and streamed back unbroken upon the rigid features of the Calvinist, rendered even more dark in their expression by the beaver cap which deeply shaded his careworn brow. The pale loveliness of Mary's face, amid the intense cold of the night, seemed almost as blooming as her ruddy companions and the frozen beauty of the surrounding woods again flashed brightly beneath the unwanted glow of those artificial rays. There, in that little group, standing in the loneliness and solitude of nature, was the contrast of heathen and Christian, social and savage, elegance and strength, fierceness and timidity. Every eye bent forward, and no sound broken upon the stillness, excepting now and then, the low, dismal growl of the wolf was heard in the distance. Whenever this fearful sound came upon the ear, the girls would involuntarily move nearer to their protectors, who repeatedly assured them that wolves would never approach a fire. Presently a quick, light step was heard, and a deer glided before them. The beautiful animal, with rapid and graceful motion, was fast hurrying to the woods, when his eye seemed caught by the singular light which gleamed around him. He paused, and looking back, turned his pert, inquiring gaze full upon the hunters. He saw the forms of men, and knew they were his enemies but so powerful was the fascination of the torches that his majestic antlers seemed motionless as the adjacent shrubbery. The arrow of Hobomock was already drawn to the head when Mary touched his shoulder, as she said, Don't kill it, Hobomock Dante, but the weapon was already on the wing, and from his hand it seldom missed its mark.
1: Yeah, and uh, actually that uh, mirrors the scene in The Pioneers, where uh, Elizabeth Temple... Tells her father not to shoot the deer. Um, that uh, deer hunt actually ends in a pioneer's like, uh, whose game is this dispute itself? But then we get to uh, chapter thirteen where, um, despite you know this experience with the uh hunting, Mary is still missing Brown uh, specifically his quote unreciprocated. Uh, she's experiencing unreciprocated intellect. So Hobomack's not sufficient for her, and e- later that's even more explicit where it um you know uh where a child says or um where it, it, it the the narrator it says that Hobobachck just can't quite compete he's good but he can't quite compete with Charles Brown in terms of intellect um Lady Arabella arrives on the uh, ship, the Arabella, which is famous for the one that, being the one that Winthrop, uh, Governor Winthrop, came on. Um, they know there's much talk. Uh, she says, uh, "Our own mighty kingdom was once a remote province of the Roman Empire." That's what she says. Her husband said. Um, chapter thirteen. Uh, Brown has sent a bunch of letters. Um, book including the fairy queen, she sends, he sent a hobomaca pipe, hobomaca and Charles are tight together, or at least friendly. Um, but yeah, a lot of gifts and he says he's going to the West Indies for his, uh, for his, for riches. Um, so chapter 15, we have more loss for Mary Arabella, Lady Arabella declines and so does, uh, her mother. Uh, then mrs Conan, on her deathbed tells this is where she uh tells mr Conant to let mary mary uh mary brown um and he basically accepts uh, somewhat begrudgingly but not too much uh, she dies uh, arabella uh dies and gifts mary a ring chapter 16 uh, mary's lonely she's uninterested even in hobomack she uh gets the news that we got more lost. Charles Brown has been in a shipwreck and uh, he's feared dead. And in fact, Governor Endicott confirms that he's dead. Mr. Conant tries and fails to commiserate with Mary. And the interesting bit of a, a psychological realism is uh, uh, Mr. Conant, uh, he, w- didn't want, he didn't want to let his daughter marry Brown, didn't want to let Mary marry Brown. Um, but when his wife told him to, he was really looking forward to the moment uh, where he could be the good guy. And when he heard that Charles died, he was very upset or more upset than he was expecting that he wasn't going to get that moment. Um, but he's trying, but ultimately he is going to push Mary away. Uh, chapter 17, Mary visits, uh, her, uh, her mother's grave. Hobomach visits her there. Um, and uh, Mary basically decides to leave with Hobomock. She goes back and uh, when she hears her father, she feels like she can't leave him. But uh, she, then she get into an argument and Mr. Conant throws Charles' Bible uh, at the fire. And that's the last straw. So Mary uh, decides to you know, abscond with Hobomock. Uh, <laughs> Hobomock, there's a... Uh, Mentioned on page 123 here of the uh, edition edited by Karcher. Uh, Hobomak is worried about her state the entire time. He says, The Indian had witnessed the dreadful ruins of mind in his own tribe, and the fear of her insanity more than once occurred to him. Then again, her brief answers to his questions would be so prompt and rational uh, that he could not admit doubt. So yeah, uh, she is communicating with the good spirit, thought he. And uh, yeah, she goes off with him. Uh, she accepts the uh, his offer that they get married in an Indian ceremony, um, but she freaks out when the pipe that Charles Brown gave to Halpamach uh, shows up, so he has to go get a different pipe. Uh, chapter 18, Mr. Conant's worried Mary killed herself um, and that he drove her to it, which would be, I mean, that'd be tough. Tough way. You lose your wife and your daughter like that. Oldham does a weird anti-miscegenation rant. Everyone's sort of speculating what could have happened to Mary. And then uh, word finally gets out. This is very upsetting to Mr. Conant to find that his uh, daughter has married an Indian. Uh, chapter 19. Mary is still stupefied with Hobomock. And then we have, uh, this is where the more explicit. Yeah, so here's a bit of uh, racism, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Kind as Hobomock was. This is chapter uh, 19. Uh, and rich as she found his uncultivated mind in native imagination, still the contrast between him and her departed lover would often be remembered with sufficient bitterness. Besides this, uh, she knew that her own nation looked upon her as degraded, and what was far worse, her own heart echoed back the charge. But uh, Sally, Sally visit, um, but her friend Sally Oldham visits her, and she eventually has Hobomach's child. Um, and starts, f- in fact, falling more and more in love with Hobomach. Um They have a playful son. And then uh, Hobomok is out hunting, and he sees the ghost of Charles Brown. Oh, wait, it's not a ghost. It's actually Charles Brown. And uh, he escaped after being held captive in Africa of the shipwreck. And uh, we don't want to get into that, he says, but uh, it's too long of a story. But I'm back now. And uh, by the way, what's happened to Mary? And Hobomok's like, should I kill him? or no. Uh, or, or, well, first he thinks is a ghost, uh, and then he's like, should I kill him? And no, he can't do that. And uh, and he realizes, despite having a child with Mary, that uh, oh, he's got to go. I, I I'm I'm going to be the bigger man and step aside here. It's like, you know, she's praying for Brown in her sleep. It's clear that she loves him more. And we have this line. Ah, uh, Yeah, Ho- Hobomach says this. Good and kind she has been, but the heart of Mary is not with the Indian. In her sleep she talks with the great spirit, and the name of the white man is on her lips. Hobomach will go far off among some of the red men in the West. They will dig him a grave, and Mary may sing the marriage song in the wigwam of the Englishman, so he just steps aside basically uh he goes back uh looks in on the looks in on Mary and the child, but decides not to uh go in and say goodbye personally and then you know chapter twenty Brown returns he oh, yeah, holds Makos who gets a divorce. Um, and says he's going to die a wanderer. Uh, Mary Mary is upset that he is going to die a wanderer and maybe should feel a little bit of guilt about that. And, uh, the Mary and Charles Mary and, uh, page one fifty, the very last page of the book. This is a short book. I, I, mean, I, would, I would actually recommend it. Um, just in terms of, um, eh, I don't know. It's just, it, I, I think, uh, you know, support lady myriad child. Um, but, uh, so Mary names the child, Charles Holbomach Conant, which, you know, that seems to be a good, uh, you know, at least she's remembering Holbomach in the name, right? Well, so they inherit some money through Charles and, uh, put him through, put him into Harvard, uh, which if you've, uh, heard, you know, Harvard has an interesting relationship, uh, she, I guess, Uh, with Native Americans. Uh, And uh, here's what says that this is how this uh, Hobomach ends here. At his request, half of the legacy of Earl Rivers was appropriated to his education. He was afterwards a distinguished graduate of Cambridge, Harvard, uh, and when uh, he left that infant university, he departed to finish his studies in England. His father was seldom spoken of, and by degrees his Indian appellation was silently omitted. But the devoted romantic love of Hobomakck was never forgotten by its object, and his faithful services to the Yankees are still remembered with great with, with gratitude, though the tender slip which he protected has since become a mighty tree, and the nations of the earth seek refuge beneath its branches, so yeah, the uh Salem grows into the American Empire um and that's only in eighteen you know twenties so <laughs> Not she. If it's if it was a mighty tree, then I mean, don't know what it is now. But um, well, folks, uh, we'll have uh, Alex, uh, Alex, and Grace back soon. Uh, I just wanted to do this one. I f- I felt guilty, um, to be honest. This is one I've always kind of wanted to do, and uh just wasn't quite sure if I could justify. It, but I I wanted to get this, uh give it a go, especially after I heard you know Cornell reference her on uh on the show, you know, it's unfortunate that there's not a lot um there's not a lot of resources besides the, these feminist academics uh, on Karcher. Um let's talk about what's upcoming on Literary Hangover um for this fall. By the way, I'd appreciate it if you became a patron uh at Literary Hangover or <clears throat> at patreon.com slash literary hangover. We have a few Orwell essays, uh, bookshelf memories, Marrakesh boys, weeklies, and Charles Dickens. Those are the next four. Uh, we'll have those over this fall. Um, uh, there's a few from the, uh, Oh, we're going to also going to do last of the Mohicans, uh, the crucible. Uh, uh, we're going to do the witch, some witch hunt stuff, I think around Halloween. So we're going to have to get geared up for that. um, I'm going to be doing jazz with a special guest. Uh, um, and then we might get into some Emerson, some Thoreau, uh, and we'll see. Um, but, uh, yeah, we're going to go back into Cooper to go into the last of Mohicans with a better grasp of you know his hostility towards, um, letting people who might, uh, breed across race, uh, survive the stories. But, uh, yeah, that's what's, uh, what's coming up. Um, thanks for, uh, this was a bit, I, this is a bit of a, uh, you know, I appreciate if you stuck around, uh, this far, I guess that's all I'll say about that. I, I appreciate you folks out there. Um, and, uh, until next time, uh, bye.